It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Geraldo Rivera. I'm Emily Campagno. And I'm Eric Sean. This is a Fox News Rundown. Wednesday, May 4th, 2022. I'm Lisa Brady. It feels like a big Supreme Court decision, but it was just a leak suggesting the court might overturn Roe versus Wade, enough to kick the abortion debate into high gear. It's devastating to the court because it has been that place that we have had confidence in Washington. And this really chips away at a time when people are losing faith in our institutions. I'm Dave Anthony. More drivers are flipping the switch, going electric. Fed up with a rising cost of filling up. My gas bill went down about $400, and my electric bill really only went up $30, like literally three zero. And I'm David Marcus. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. Judging from the reaction, you'd think the U.S. Supreme Court had just ended abortion rights. This after the leak of a draft opinion written by Justice Samuel Alito in a case centered on Mississippi's 15-week abortion ban, explaining why Roe v. Wade, the 1973 decision that legalized abortion nationwide, should be overturned. The draft was first reported Monday night by Politico. Just a few hours later, the Democratic National Committee was out with a statement that reproductive rights would be on the ballot this fall. By Tuesday morning, President Biden was also calling on voters to pick pro-choice candidates and calling the draft opinion radical. If the rationale of the decision as released were to be sustained, a whole range of rights are in question. The president wants abortion rights legislation to make Roe federal law. Democrats are going to fight this decision all the way for as long as it takes. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says he's outraged by the draft and by Republican reaction, accusing them of ducking the issue by focusing on the leak. But Senate GOP Leader Mitch McConnell says liberals want to override impartiality with intimidation. They want to elevate mob rule over the rule of law. Chief Justice John Roberts says he directed the marshal of the court to investigate, calling the leak a singular and egregious breach of trust, but also vowing that it will not undermine the court's integrity. The court is also emphasizing it's not a decision and doesn't represent any member's final position. This is exceptionally unusual. Shannon Bream is the Fox News chief legal correspondent and anchor of Fox News at Night. I've covered the court for 15 years and never seen anything even remotely like this. So it was the one institution in Washington that you expected was sort of airtight. It has been in my entire time covering this and for decades before that. It's not that leaks never happen, but to have a draft opinion, which the court has confirmed is legit, actually leaked in full, is kind of astonishing. The chief justice has said that, you know, it is going to be investigated. What does that process look like? I mean, are they they must be really angry right now behind the scenes. I think this is a tough one uh, for the chief. Um, His duty to protect and his passion to protect the court is very evident. So the fact that this has happened on his watch has got to be very disturbing to him. We've had a couple leaks this year on much more minor situations. We had mask gates in which we were told there was reporting that Justice Sotomayor had asked people to wear masks and that Justice Gorsuch had declined and there was a tiff. And I quickly found out that was not true, which was confirmed by statements from Justices Gorsuch, Sotomayor, and then 
then the chief justice himself. So it's been a busy year on that front. The marshal's office is going to be heading up this investigation and the chief appears to have full confidence they will get to the bottom of it. So we will now stand by to see exactly what the court finds. The Biden administration's argument in support of Roe versus Wade is the 14th Amendment's concept of personal liberty, that there's been a long precedent in favor of that and against government interference with intensely personal decisions. Now, the leaked draft has Justice Alito writing it's time to heed the Constitution and return the issue of abortion to the states. In other words, it's a right not guaranteed by the Constitution. Is that the crux of this debate? And does that then make the viability issue, the timing of an abortion, a moot point? Yeah, I mean, I think you do get to the heart of this at whether or not there is a constitutional right to abortion. And even those who were supportive of Roe and that would consider themselves pro-choice, there were those who felt it didn't have strong legal underpinnings or the way that it was reasoned out or tackled, left it open potentially to being chipped away at or overruled at some point. I mean, Justice Ginsburg was in that camp who felt like it wasn't decided in precisely the way she thought had the best legal reasoning that would protect that decision down the line. So at the heart of this, this draft from Justice Alito says he finds no constitutional right. He says the court in Roe glossed over it and did not carefully consider uh, and find that there was an actual constitutional right to this um, procedure. And so that's basically his bottom line is both Roe and Casey, the follow up case, have got to go because they don't have strong legal underpinnings and constitutional underpinnings. And again, it doesn't mean that abortion will be outlawed. It does mean that states are going to have a lot more latitude if the final opinion ends up being along the lines of this draft. President Biden is suggesting that this would throw other privacy related issues into question. For instance, could Florida now outlaw same sex marriage if this is essentially being kicked to the states? I don't see room for that in this 98 page draft. Again, what we end up getting as the final opinion, who knows how it's been nuanced or tweaked or or what different iterations it's gone through. The court, it seems here, and Justice Leto writing seems to say that this is a different situation and that this is a quote life or a fetal life that is being held in the balance. And that's how you have to make the assessment about um, who gets to make these decisions. So I know there's a lot of fear on the left that there will be some undoing of other decisions. I think this is historic in nature if it actually turns out that the final opinion does overrule Roe. But I think that to extrapolate that it's going to rip apart all kinds of other privacy detailed rights, I think is a bit overblown at this point. We'll have to see. Yeah, I mean... What about something like the death penalty, even? Could that be reconsidered based on the the constitutional right to end a life? Yeah, I mean, there there has been a lot of pushback on the issue of the death penalty the last few years of the court. And Justice Breyer, who's getting ready to leave, is one of those who has really I mean, the court is free to reconsider anything it's decided in the past. And um, like I said earlier, there are those across the legal and political spectrum who thought that Roe was on shaky ground because of the original way that it was decided. And it looks potentially like if this final opinion tracks uh, with the draft from Justice Alito, looks like it's on track to do that, to say Roe was never rightly decided. And we are now correcting what they view as that mistake. How much higher is the burden when you're talking about possibly overturning precedent? Are there specific metrics or tests for that to help make that decision? 
Yeah, definitely. When the justices are looking at this idea of stare decisis, they will walk through a calculation to assess whether or not it is time to overturn an earlier decision. So there are all kinds of things that they will consider here and that, you know, have sort of been walked through the nature of the error, the quality of the reasoning of the original um, piece, which in this case would be Roe, the workability of rules, disruptive area to other areas of the law and the absence of concrete reliance on it. So there's definitely a framework that they walk through for this. And um, in Justice, um, I was going to say Scalia, (laughs) Justice Alito, in his assessment, walking through those steps, he thinks the court is justified in overturning this case of landmark precedents. This leak would seem to put even more pressure on the justices because this, you know, has the potential to be such a monumental decision. Republican Senator Susan Collins of Maine came out with a statement saying if this is the final decision, it would be completely inconsistent with what Justice Gorsuch and Justice Kavanaugh said in their hearings and in meetings in her office. Does that surprise you? Well, I can't speak to what happened in their conversations in her office. Only those people will know. But what publicly these recent nominees have said has has left room for this to happen. They have said that they respect the idea of precedent and uh, the workings of the court and the way that it operates. But I never heard any of these recent nominees say under no circumstances would I ever consider overturning Roe v. Wade. So I feel like um, nominees are very careful, whether they're nominated by Democrats or Republicans, to leave that tiniest window open to say, yes, I have great respect for precedent. I don't foresee any scenario in which um, we're going to revisit this. But, you know, there is a scenario in which the court has looked back at decisions and said we got it wrong the first time. Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell says the court should tune out bad faith noise and feel free to do their job. And that would actually seem like a prerequisite for the justices. <laughs> um, is it harder to do that today than in decades past or is like, you know, the pressure just different types of pressure? You know, I doubt many of these justices spend a lot of time on Twitter or on social media. I'm not saying they don't lurk around. Maybe I don't think it's a big part of their day. And there are some of them who read a lot of the media coverage of the court. There are others who want nothing to do with it because they don't want to be influenced or swayed. And, you know, in this draft opinion, Justice Alito talks about the fact that we have to follow the law and make the decisions as we as jurists see them. We can't be worried about what the public fallout will be. Um, And I think he's putting down a marker there saying that's not the way the court should operate. There's certainly a lot of pressure on them. I mean, you think about Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer just last year stood on the steps of the Supreme Court and specifically invoked the names of Justices Kavanaugh and Gorsuch and said, you know, you're going to reap the whirlwind and you will pay if you make these, quote, awful decisions. So, you know, even elected members of Congress, high ranking ones, have tried to send messages that many people view as intimidation to the justices. But as the chief justice said in his response and his public statement on this, this is not going to affect the workings of the court. We're going to do our jobs. And I think he's very committed to making sure they all do that. What's your take on the potential motivation behind this leak? Because two kind of basic schools of thought seem to be emerging in terms of theories, Um, one being that it was designed to put pressure on the justices not to overturn Roe, and the other being that, you know, maybe it's a political move fueled by Democrats wanting to have a midterm campaign issue. 
Mm-hmm. I, you know, any of those things is possible. You only the leaker knows. And that person made a very specific choice because this is a very dangerous thing to do if you care about the integrity of the court. But they clearly made their calculations for whatever reason to move ahead with this. Um, I had someone email me a few minutes ago and said, well, what if it was somebody on the right who wanted this to be the final opinion and wanted to get it out there and was afraid that, um, you know, one of the conservatives was going to peel off and try to write a more watered down opinion? I mean, the theories are endless and I'm confident. I actually think that the court will get to the bottom of where this came from. It's such a small universe of people who would have access to this opinion. And much of it is done in hard copy format rather than emails and that kind of thing to protect against this kind of thing. But I'm just as fascinated as everybody else to see exactly where this goes. How devastating could it be for the court as an institution if someone behind the scenes even has been part of something that is politically motivated on the left or the right. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I think it's devastating to the court because it has been that place that we have had confidence in Washington. And this really chips away at a time when people are losing faith in our institutions. And the court is a place that you want to view as down the middle judges and justices who actually decide strictly on what they think the law means and interpret it on that alone and not based on emotion or public pressure or anything else. So um, regardless of where you stand on this particular issue or whether you're happy or not happy about this opinion, I think it's really sad to think um, that this breach has happened at the court at a time when people really need to have confidence in their institutions. This is only early May. Now already we've got protesters outside the Supreme Court on something, you know, something that wasn't expected to be a decision until June. Do you think this will hasten the release of of the final decision, even though they say they're just going to keep working and not let this affect anything? You know what? My gut believes we're going to get this earlier than last week of June, which is when we normally would wait for the big landmark cases of the term. I think because there are real concerns about the safety of all of the justices and especially those who would be conservatives who would have signed on to what, listen, has no import and no force at all right now. It's a draft opinion. You know, does it happen in a day or two? I don't think so. Does it happen short of the last week of June? I think so. Fox News chief legal correspondent and anchor of Fox News at night, Shannon Bream. Thanks so much for your time. Great to be with you. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. This is David Marcus with your Fox News commentary coming up. The cost to fill up is being pumped back up. Gas has risen about a penny a day the past week, with AAA's national average for regular around four twenty a gallon. That is just thirteen cents from its record high in March when President Biden said the reason for that is because of Putin's war. Blaming Russia's leader, though Republicans have also blamed the president. Senator Ted Cruz tells Fox. They've decided politically, let's blame this train wreck of a Biden energy policy on Vladimir Putin. Well, you know what? The gasoline prices had had ridden 48 percent before Putin invaded Ukraine. Regardless of the reason, the high cost has driven some people to shift gears and go electric. Kelly Blue Book reports in the first three months of this year, Americans bought nearly twice as many electric vehicles than the same period in 2021. And for the first time, 
5% of all vehicle sales were electric, a trend the White House likes. It has a goal of half of all vehicles in the U.S. be electric by 2030, and to that end, a few months ago, the president offered $5 billion in grants to states to make more charging stations available. And on Monday, the Biden administration pledged a $3.1 billion in funding opportunity announcement to build up the supply chain for the manufacturing of the battery. Now, Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm adds... Those who want to apply for it, like businesses who are interested in either teaming together potentially for a processing facility or on their own, that they will have to supply a match of the funding. So the $3.1 billion ends up becoming $6.2 billion. Now, there are several automakers producing electric vehicles. Tesla leads the way by far. Its sales surged 81% in the first quarter, and Kelly Blue Book also reports three in four electric vehicles sold so far this year here in the U.S. are Teslas. Ford is also making them with an all-new truck. F-150 Lightning is one of the first full-size pickup trucks on the market for an electric EV. Linda Zhang is Ford's chief engineer on that F-150 Lightning. We have one shot to get it right because that this first impression for our customers matter. Particularly with gas prices increasing, this truck, um, starting at under $40,000, is just such a great proposition for our customers. And that is before any uh, federal or state incentives. You must have some people, though, who are wary, right? I mean, as you mentioned, it's a popular truck. Some people say, I like the truck the way I have it. I, I don't want to lose any, maybe they fear they lose power or the ability to tow or all the things they do with their truck. What do you say when people give you that? I say that this truck gives them all of that plus more. And that's exactly what we base this, um, the development of this truck on. It is a series. And with that, it's built for tough. We made sure that from a capability, reliability, durability perspective, we go through the same regiment that we do with any truck. This one tows up to 10,000 pounds, uh, payload of uh, over 2,000 pounds now. And... Um, the performance is even more fantastic. Zero to 60 in mid four seconds with near instant torque of 775 foot pounds and 580 horsepower. So definitely they won't be give, customers will not have to give up anything in terms of performance or capability. And then on top of that, because we're able to go electric, we're giving our customers even more with all the features that can really only be brought with electrification, like this capability to be able to back up their homes as a backup generator for days on end um, with the intelligent backup power or pro power on board, which allows them to take the truck and use it as a generator on, on wheels anywhere they need, want to. So, um, you know, that along with the performance and just the fact that without an engine, we also have this enormous space in the front of the truck called the mega power frunk. Uh, frunk is front trunk. <laughs> it is a 400 liters of volume and 400 pounds of payload, enough to be able to put two full-size golf clubs inside of this um, mega power frunk. So just a, a fantastic space and only capable because of the fact that it's an EV. All right. All right. So where, you said without the engine, so where is the mechanism in an electric vehicle? 
the battery sits um, underneath the cab, basically between the wheel, between the front wheels and the rear wheels. Um, and then there's two dual electric motors that run the propulsion okay. uh, between the battery and the motor. All right. Everyone in these electric vehicles, vehicles always wants to know, how many miles can I drive before I have to plug it in? Yeah, so our extended range batteries provide our customers with 320 miles of full range. And I think the one thing to think about that's a little bit different in this case is with an EV, most of our customers charge at home with a level two charger. With the extended range, we actually provide our customers with an 80 amp charger that they can use. And with that, it charges overnight to get you 320 miles every morning if that's what you want. Okay. Um, And then, you know, for the longer road trips, uh, we have access to 90,000 charging plugs around um, North America. So okay. lots of opportunity to charge, even on the go. Now, that's the issue that, that people always also talk about when they put up a barrier to buying an electric vehicle. I know uh, at a shopping mall near where I live, there's a whole row of these Tesla stations, right? But I don't see too many places anywhere in like, uh, you know, like gas stations or just that are generally just electric charging stations. How much more are we going to see of that in the coming years? Well, that will definitely increase. That infrastructure is building. But, I mean, even now, between last year and this year, we've gone up from 60,000 plugs to the 90,000. So, I mean, that's a huge increase in infrastructure, and it will only continue to accelerate. Okay. The next thing is... You know, obviously, we know how much it fill, costs to fill up with gas, especially with over $4 a gallon nowadays. How much does it cost me to plug in an electric car to my home in energy costs every time I plug it in? Oh, it's definitely a lot less. I mean, I... Um I switched over to a Maki. I can probably give you better from like just a personal example, right? Sure. But I switched over to a Ford Mustang Maki okay. uh, a few years ago, and at that point, my gas bill went down about four hundred dollars, and my electric bill really only went up thirty dollars, like literally three zero. So okay. ten times the delta um, in terms of savings, and it, you know, particularly with. Um, EV charging at, you know, in low peak hours at night, if you leverage that rate, um, it is just a fantastic rate. When I go to a charging station, how much time should I expect to to sit there? I mean, at least there's one thing about the gas station. It takes only a couple minutes and you're gone and you have a full tank. How long does it take? If you have to go to a charging station in the middle of a trip somewhere, how long do you have to sit there? And is there like a credit card you put it in and and it charges you by by how much you get out? I'm, I'm, I'm new at this, so please help me. Yes. I mean, you're exactly right. So actually with Ford Pass, um, we we uh, uh, link the uh, communication between the EV charging and uh, your system. So all of that's kind of pre-programmed in almost in a way um, to make it convenient for the customer. But yes, you just plug it in and uh, let it go and it, it goes. Okay. But to go from, say, 15% to 80-some percent, uh, we're looking at about, you know, low 40 minutes. So a lot of the times what I've found personally, again, is, you know, at that point, um, it's perfect because my, my family needs to stop anyway. I need to stop for a quick break, we grab a bite to eat, and by the time we're ready to go, the car or truck is already charged up, ready to go, too. Another one that I had heard someone ask this question when there was a snowstorm. There were a bunch of cars stuck on a highway for hours and hours and hours. People ran out of gas, 
and they were stranded. And it was a, it was a very a very difficult time. People spent like a day there. What would happen if your electric vehicle was a part of that, and it happened for you when you were stuck? How long would the juice last? Would you run out of electricity like the cars run out of gas? Um, I mean, it's definitely possible, but I think one of the great things about this truck is that if this truck was in that storm, it would actually be one of those vehicles helping others, right? Because of the pro power on board and the charging capability, this we have such a... Um, big battery underneath this truck, it can keep a home comfortably backed up for days on end. So if you think about it from that perspective, we should definitely be able to keep the car running for uh, multiple days as well. Right. So if you're Um, not driving it, it's going to hold the charge. Right. And I think, you know, the use that you're talking about would just be climate to keep the, you know, the the passengers comfortable, which is efficient. Right. So I mean, you've been doing this for a long time as an engineer. The 320-mile range that you have now on this on this Ford, in 10 years, in 20 years, do you think it's going to be a lot more than that? I think uh, that that's where, you know, infrastructure will help us along the way. And down the road, it's only going to get better because even with iPhones now, you know, the battery's improved and I can last uh, a much longer time now than I could, you know, even five years ago. So um, I know everyone's got range anxiety right now, but once they get in the vehicle, once they experience it, once they live with it for a little bit, the style of how you drive and how you live changes a little bit to really in a positive way. I know there's no oil change in an electric vehicle. So what, what kind of maintenance do I expect from an electric versus a traditional? Yeah, no, that's a great point. That's another reason why total cost of ownership is great, right? You don't have to go in for oil changes every 10,000 miles. Um, For us, it's really just uh, tire rotations uh, because uh, there's really nothing that needs to be changed until we get to about 150,000 miles. I know you've had a lot of demand for this vehicle. How many people want one for this this new Ford (laughs) F-150? Yeah, um, so we actually hit over 200,000 reservations last December, at which point we had to pause our reservation. And even this year, we know that there's been tremendous um, interest in the vehicle. So I think uh, the, the interest is definitely there. And at Ford, we're trying to meet that demand. We've increased our capacity for the Lightning, and we're going to be at um, 150,000 units running rate uh, in 23. Linda Zhang, chief engineer for the Ford All-Electric F-150 Lightning. Thank you very much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Fox News Podcasts Network. Stay on top of the latest news and information from Fox News. Listen and download the Fox News Hourly Update on your time. The trending stories you need anytime you want it. Listen and download now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Rate and review the Fox News Rundown on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's time for your Fox News commentary. David Marcus. What's on your mind? The rise of the parent is a primary power in American politics has been stunning over the past year. In Virginia, Glenn Youngkin surged into the governor's mansion in no small part owing to his battle against critical race theory in the schools. In Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis signed a sweeping and popular bill to protect young kids from trans ideology in the classroom. Both of these politicians and many more Republicans have been buoyed by the anger and frustration of parents who, to borrow an old phrase from the lefties, are chanting, whose kids? Our kids. 
But if this is proving to be a boon to the GOP, it is an absolute morass for the Democrat Party, which can't even decide its actual positions on education. Take White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki. I asked recently about Florida's parental rights bill, which her boss Joe Biden not only disagrees with, but calls hateful and bigoted. Psaki expressed disdain for DeSantis's measure and added this. I also think there is not a big record of there being either sex education or extensive gender identity education in these schools, adding that it's an issue I don't think exists. If that sounds familiar, it should. It is the exact same lie the Democrats use to avoid even discussing the role that critical race theory clearly plays in our public schools. They blithely insist that CRT is only taught in law school, alighting the fact that it is absolutely also taught in teacher education. CRT is not so much a school subject, but a pedagogy, a worldview. That is what American parents are objecting to. During the pandemic lockdowns, parents got a laptop window into their children's education, and many didn't care much for what they saw. Just as we see in the controversial and viral videos from the libs of TikTok Twitter account, these parents saw teachers more interested in creating good little activists than in helping kids read and count. But even worse, that activism, whether in support of a galaxy of genders or the Marxist musings of Black Lives Matter, contains a value system that many parents do not share. This brings us squarely back to the question of whose kids are they? Too many educators see their views on race and gender not as a competing value system, but as a sacred a priori truth that justifies defying allegedly bigoted parents. This leaves parents with two options, a Republican Party that reacts to their concerns, even perhaps with too much overreach, or a Democrat Party that just has its head in the sand. But Democrats need to understand that this issue is not going away and telling Americans that CRT and trans ideology in the schools is great and also it doesn't exist is not going to cut it. Hillary Clinton famously said in the 1990s that it takes a village to raise a child. Today, that maxim is being tested in very real ways. Everyone wants teachers to care for and about their students, but not everybody wants those teachers to mold the minds of kids into mirrors of their progressive ideologies on the most basic and deepest questions, many parents still want to have the final say. The year of the parent may well usher in Republican majorities in Congress come November, but this issue is far bigger than politics. Parents want a hand on the steering wheel of their kids' lives and education. They don't want self-driving children guided by left-wing shibboleths. So far, they seem to be winning the cultural battle to take back control, and that shows no sign of stopping. I'm David Marcus, columnist and author of Charade, The COVID Lies That Crushed a Nation. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. Rundown. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.